welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That is our brand-new subscriber section. That is now replacing the print magazine. We printed this magazine called Counterpunch for more than 25 years. It was a glorious 25 years, but unfortunately, the economic reality of publishing has now come upon us, and we have retired the magazine, but not to Counterpunch Plus is here. You can go to the website, get your subscription, and you will have access to all of the content. Excellent columns, of course, from the inimitable Jeff Sinclair, Laura Carlson, Jennifer Matsui, Chris Floyd, Pete Dolek, so many more with all of the great features on Counterpunch. Of course, you'll also get more than 25 years of archives, all of those excellent features from Alex Coburn over the many, many years and so many others. Please do consider getting your subscription to Counterpunch. It is a great way to support not only Counterpunch, but also independent media. If you want critical analysis from the left on the political times that we're living in that's not beholden to these various corporate entities that control this media ecosystem, then you need to be a supporter of independent media like Counterpunch. Go to the website, get your subscription. If you would like to also follow my work and support my work, you can go to Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. There you're going to find a lot more content, including articles, essays, commentaries, a whole lot more from me. So with all of that said, I want to turn to my guest today, a very special guest, I would say. Uh, he is Professor Emeritus of Russian at Hunter College in New York City. He's the author of many books, including several that we're going to be discussing here today. Let me just note those couple. Shush, Growing Up Jewish Under Stalin, a memoir. Uh, Farewell, Mama Odessa, brand new book we'll be talking about, and the even more brand new book, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir which is just about to be released. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about that uh, and the virtual book launch for this brand new book. That is coming up on Wednesday, February 3rd at 6.30 p.m. Uh, I will include the link in the show notes, the link to register for the event. And of course, I should note, of course, one of his most important contributions, he's my uncle, Emil Dreitzer. Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with us for these uh, wonderful books. Not everybody gets to uh, see their family immortalized in print. And so it's always a thrill for me to read uh, all of your work. And so I'm very happy to talk about your new book, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir, which we will get into in a few moments. But before we do, um, let me just begin, if I could, by asking you to help us locate ourselves uh, in reading through your work. I think one of the main questions we have to ask is, what is this place, Odessa, that you come from? Uh, what made it unique in the Soviet Union? How does the history of this place play into not only the culture of the city, but in some of your own experiences? Uh, yes, I actually uh, location of most of the action of my all my three books that you mentioned is Odessa. You know, the the first book uh, they mentioned, Shush, growing up Jewish, understanding. I grew up in Odessa. I was born shortly before the beginning of World War II, and uh, when came back from evacuation, spent all my adult life at, all the way through college, uh, to first college in Odessa. Um, and then uh, basically 
I lived in Odessa all the way to 1960, uh, 1960s. Um, and then I uh, moved to Kiev for three years. And my last 12 years of my Soviet life I spent in Moscow. But uh, obviously Odessa that I grew up in actually made me, as I realized later on, I'll tell you <laughs> in, the, in the course of our discussion, how it happened that Odessa became a, actually a qualification for me becoming a writer. All right, so Odessa, first of all, for most people who geographically don't know where Odessa is located, it's located on the northern uh, part of the Black Sea. And it is a relatively new city in, in, the, uh, in Russia. Uh, at the end of the 18th century, Catherine the Great uh, felt that she needed a port that has a year-round navigation. In Odessa, obviously, Black Sea is never frozen, so therefore she decided to make this a port for trade with Europe, with the rest of the world. So by virtue of, of creating Odessa, uh, uh, by which its, its creation, Odessa became a, a melting pot of many nationalities. It's interesting that Mark Twain, when he traveled uh, to Odessa, as a, uh, he describes in, in his book Innocence Abroad in 1867, he made the startling discovery that he felt that, uh, I, I may quote him here, that there was not one thing remind us when we were in Russia, when he was in Odessa. I had not felt so much at home for a long time as I did when I stood in Odessa for the first time. It looked like just like an American city. Look up the street, look up the street or down the street, this way or that way. We saw only America. So, um, Catherine the Great, in order to basically one of her main purposes of creating Odessa was to trade um, grain, uh, grown in Russia with Europe, two European countries. So therefore she invited Jews from all over Pale of Settlement, that means the area they were prescribed to live at that time, to come over. And so Jews flocked in Odessa in mass and uh, they, it, because, and it, they love it because it was a far cry from a stifling atmosphere of the shtetls. There was even a saying, that uh, he lives like a Tsar in Odessa, things like that. Another totally different uh, feeling for it. It's interesting that in the 1920s, when Mayakovsky, uh, uh, Russian poet Vladimir Mayakovsky, came to visit the United States and he stayed in New York, he, produced, he felt the same kind of a, a spirit of New York resembling the Odessa spirit. I first said it in Russian, Uz yesli Odessa, Odessa mama, to New York, Odessa Otec. If we call Odessa Mama Odessa, then New York is Father Odessa. That's one of the title of my, uh, what my emigre book, uh, uh, Farewell Mama Odessa. That refers to, to this folkloric name of the city. So what was so motherly about Odessa? Uh, Odessa basically uh, played a remarkable role in Jewish history and culture. Because of that accumulation of, of uh, Jews who lived and worked in Odessa, uh, Odessa became like a motherland, uh, motherland of Jewish culture. Uh, Sholem Aleichem lived here. Then uh, the father of Yiddish literature, Mendel Moichas Forum, the great Jewish poet uh, Bialik. 
than uh, painter Leonid Pasternak, Russian Jewish historian Dubno. Uh, uh, by the way, uh, doing research for my book, I found actually interesting that Odessa Jeans gave America George Gershwin, Bob Dylan, and Steven Spielberg, just to name a few. Odessa was a Jewish capital, uh, theater capital of Russia. Uh, so it is also known that the grandmothers of some American superstar, Leonardo DiCaprio in Sylvester Stallone, came from Odessa. Moreover, Stella Adler, uh, a daughter of two Odessa actors, uh, she in America, she taught acting to Marlon Brando, Robert De Niro, Elizabeth Taylor, Warren Beatty, Judy Garland, just to name a few. So that's what it makes uh, Odessa. So in other words, this very spirit of Odessa, of being melting pot. People of many nationalities live there. Um, besides Ukrainians, Russians, and Jews, there were Italians, French, Germans, Bulgarians, Greeks, uh, people of uh, Georgians and so on. So that created a certain... Um, kind of an atmosphere in which humor, and I will talk about it maybe later, humor played a very important role. Humor kind of a, usually softened the borders between ethnic groups, found a way to talk to each other without really having sharp edges, so to speak. That's an important picture, I think, that you're giving us of the city. But can we get a little bit deeper into a material analysis? Explain what actual life was like. What was working class Jewish life like? How did the uh, life, daily life differ for non-Jews in Odessa? Of course, uh, vastly different experiences depending upon the cultural sphere. And uh, maybe you could also speak a little bit on how did working class life in Odessa differ from it might how it might have been in other cities in the Soviet Union? Uh, actually, it's a good question because um, uh, working class in Odessa um, lived like everywhere else. I mean, Jews living in Odessa did not have a different life than in other cities. The only difference was because Odessa was that kind of a, had a very strong entrepreneurial spirit. There was a lot of underground economy flourishing in Odessa. To begin with, uh, my personal story is that my father um, was a house painter. And uh, he very early, when he came back from World War II, uh, he found that he basically, if he would simply go and work for a government, for a state uh, office as a house painter, the salary was so low that he would not be able to support family, our family. Um, my mother and, and my, my brother, uh, your Eric father, and me, it would be simply impossible. Plus mismanagement uh, of the, specifically on the uh, construction field and so on. So he worked for himself without obviously advertising by word of mouth, but he was risking every time to be arrested by the financial police because it was not allowed to have uh, your private, private business running. So that was the difference. And of course, Odessa was uh, uh, so many more uh, so-called uh, artsili, they called them, um, underground uh, the, the kind of facilities to produce um, everyday kind of a, a, uh, everyday little things for the population, which the government, uh, this, uh, the state economy was not able to supply. 
So that was uh, that was the life of Odessa at that time. Can you speak a little bit about uh, literary life in the Soviet Union? Of course, much of your book and certainly the most recent book in the Jaws of the Crocodile speaks to your experience, but give us a, a general understanding of what literary life was like in the Soviet Union post-World War II, especially uh, in the post-Stalin period. What was the life of a writer? What were the opportunities if there were any? Uh, yeah, um, actually, it's, uh, uh, as, as we know, Russia is a, a highly literate society. And uh, Stalin, in Stalin's time, actually, Stalin highly valued writers. He actually called them uh, the engineers of the human souls because he knew that nobody but writers can affect people's minds. And, there's, and, and oftentimes, they have a powerful control over this. So obviously, at the same time, of, of course, all these writers were under uh, close scrutiny. Censorship was a part of being published at that time. Um, but uh, interesting also that the writers would be um, a special category. There was one very important incentive for every writer become to be um, part of the union. The Union of Soviet Soviet the Union of Soviet Writers. Why? Because that was the only sure way they would not be, as writers, accused of parasitism. Uh, and the Soviet Union was prohibited not to be registered as, in other words, every Soviet passport had a stamp not only where you live, but also where you work. So, for example, just to remind you, the Joseph Brodsky was tried for parasitism, tuniyatstva. Why? Because he was not a member of the Union Writers. And so that was very important to, to become a member of, of the Union. But not, it didn't mean really that to become a member of Union, you automatically are in favor or you reach, but it would mean simply that you are secure. And uh, but writers were paid. By the way, it's kind of kind of weird uh, comparing to America that writers were not paid by royalties. But I mean, it was kind of a, a cut of a, of a sales of a book, but the, of a size of a book. Uh, it's called the unit was called author shit after Skilist. It's about tap, uh, twenty typewritten pages. So this tape right page. At the same time, the rates obviously will be different from different writers. If you're a famous writer, if you write stuff that is uh, that the government will send to all libraries, no matter what, whether they want it or not, uh, then you will be paid higher. So that was kind of a very, very strong kind of a um, uh, structured system. Of course, uh, some writers who were in, in commanding position. Obviously, they had to be party members to be totally trusted. They could publish several books, uh, you know, in a short period of time, and they could be very rich. But writers who would want to write just honest uh, books, uh, they they found in the post-Stalin time there was a period when where you were possibly to to write um, to publish uh, books that are marginally acceptable at that time of the tour. By the way, I myself as a, actually, if not for the tour, the period of relaxation of the control over culture on, on time of Khrushchev, uh, I probably would never be able to even to, to come close to it, but the tour uh, made it uh, possible and maybe a little bit more later we'll, we'll talk 
about how uh, what was possible at, at that time in terms of uh, um, in, in writing activity. And, and if you could just follow up a little bit on the actual path for a person. So, and you describe this in your book as well, your own experience of being first kind of confronted with this idea that you could be a writer and then constantly uh, finding the road to actually becoming a writer laborious. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, actually, I already, as I mentioned already, my, uh, my, uh, actually how I became a satirical. First of all, I wanted, I'm sure that for most Americans, Soviet satire sounds like contradiction in terms. However, um, I'd like to explain this a little bit. There was a plethora of satirical outlets in, in the Soviet Union. The, the, the main satirical magazine, Crocodile, was published three times a month, six, month, six million copies each time. So by far more than American National Lampoon or Mad Magazine. Then there was a movie satirical magazine called Fetil, The Week. Uh, it comes from the you know kind of Russian expression of Stavit Fetil, to give somebody a, a, a good uh, working over. So uh, there was an army satirist working within the censored Soviet media. So the question would come, how come satire existed and uh, why it was needed? Well, the most, the most kind of a one line that explains it all, the task for of the Soviet satirists was given, quote, to fight separate shortcomings that obstruct our movement forward toward communism, which means the system did not work well. Uh, so satire should talk about poor, kind of a, make fun of poor work discipline, poor workmanship, uh, like criticism of uh, some, some even thought of it that uh, Crocodile was like a satiric consumer reports magazine. Uh, actually, one myself actually here and probably wrote myself and explain how it, it came about. I was start writing satire. I never thought of it that I wanted to have it in me, um, and that I came to um, when I when I was working in Moscow, I came to uh, Moscow. Um, Newspaper, uh, Moscow, uh, Moskovsky Komsomol, it's Moscow Komsomol member. Uh, and uh, I brought some lyrical piece in the, because they publish things about for uh, in, in newspapers. Uh, and the, the editor looked at over and said, Yeah, this is nice writing and so on. But you know what? We are a newspaper. We need something really uh, topical. Uh, you have some accent, he said. What, where are you from? I said, that's, oh, then why, why shouldn't you, you should write satire for us. Why? And this is again, why? Because Odessa, because of its predominantly Jewish spirit of the Odessa, had the reputation of being the, 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 cap, the humor capital of the, of, of the Soviet Union. And all jokes were attributed to Odessa uh, producer and so on. So and that's why, for example, and 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 he gave me um, he gave me a letter sent to to the newspaper to the editor. Many letters will come from people complaining about the poor quality of goods for produced for population. This one was from a woman, uh, a new kind of a young mother who wrote that she came to uh, uh, she bought some um, onesies for babies and. Uh, 
it immediately fell apart. So, and so he gave me this and, um, and said, write something about it, think of something. So <laughs> in the morning I came up with a, with a, with a since I was born in Odessa, and it's the very spirit, Odessans talk always in, in kind of a, uh, making fun of, of whatever they, they can feel like. Uh, ironic spirit is in, in the Odessa genes. So uh, I kind of wrote a little piece uh, saying that a woman comes to uh, a store and asks for to buy onesies. And the, and the uh, salesman said, uh, but uh, t- tell us, uh, um, young lady, is your, what's the temperament of your baby? Is he choleric or phlegmatic? And she said, "Why? What have to do with with his uh, temperament?" Well, we we only sell for uh, onesies for the phlegmatic because if he's uh, <laughs> if he's too lively and jerks his feet and hands, it, it will fall apart. Something of that sort. So that was published, and that actually it started my career as a writer, uh, satirical writer for for the newspapers and magazines. So, but all other things like. Fi- um, something, a uh, violation of financial discipline, theft at the working place, uh, cheating at the stores, obesity. It was kind of rampant. Also. But what is important to uh, for American audience and descent, uh, the satire aimed not at the economy as a whole. You could not generalize, for God's sakes. It's only what meant to, as a satire, to ridicule low and mid-level management and administrators. So therefore, was pieces on and cartoons on bureaucracy, on fraud reporting, fulfillment of plan that get and to get bonuses, on bribery, on abuse of power of the office. Again, of low level, mid-level, on industrial pollution, on 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 uh, shutting up criticism, uh, and on and on and on. So it kind of things were, uh, that was quite wide range of it, but none of it was ever, ever allowed to be uh, aimed at the system as such. That's, that's probably sums it up. Before we go to the break, I want to just ask you, uh, and I realize this is a bit of a heady question, so uh, you know, take it for take it in whatever direction you'd like. But I'd like to ask you a little bit about um, this seeming tension that exists between the Soviet Union between what is on the one hand obviously and clearly a highly literate society, one of the most literate in the world, and on the other hand, a highly repressive uh, apparatus of censorship. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that tension and what that looked like? What were some of the journals and the publications like? Was there any sort of underground literary community? What did that look like? This is a very interesting question because that's true for the most part, let's say, of Stalin's time. Practically, it was impossible to write anything that is questioned status quo or any of the political dogmas. However, as I already mentioned, I, I kind of came into writing field at the time of the thaw, of the relaxation of the uh, censorship. So certain things were opened up uh, for criticism. In literature, however, Russian literature has always had um, a specific because of the censorship, let's say in Stalin's time and in the Tsarist time as well, there was a genre, uh, there was a, a means of avoiding censor, uh, head-on collision with the censorship 
using his sapient language. That means writing things between the lines, saying things between the lines. And that was quite elaborately done in the time, especially in the 70s, late, late, late 60s in the 70s. The thing is that the the hopes of the the thaw of the liberation basically ended with the uh, creative intelligentsia in the Soviet Union with the invasion of Czechoslovakia in the August 1968. Since then, it was clear that Stalinism didn't die totally, that is coming back. Brezhnev, all these kind of uh, relaxations of the Khrushchev time started to to be uh, subdued. Uh, he himself was already uh, pushed out of, of his uh, position in, in the government. So the only way of working as a writer, a satirical writer especially at that time, was through use of Isapian language. And I'll give you some example what it means. I, my, my first publication, yeah, some, the, probably the most interesting, the most popular in the Soviet Union was the, uh, the, the Club of the Twelve Chairs of Literary Gazette uh, that published sort of a humorous pieces. It actually aimed to be like a humor for intelligentsia. However, it published pieces uh, that in between lines made fun of the uh, uh, ideology of the Soviet Union. I'll give you an example, probably the most prominent one I write about it in my book about uh, another writer who uh, wrote a kind of a, a humorous story about a drunkard who late at night he was trying... Uh, uh, snowing, he trying to catch uh, uh, a taxi, and he sees nearby at night uh, another fellow like him with stretched out hand, also trying to get directly. So he felt, well, he has to help him. Anyway, he grabbed him. He was heavy. He brought him home and threw him on the, on the bed. Only to when we, when he woke up, and I'm I'm kind of retelling this story he found that actually he dragged a statue from a pedestal. That means a sculpture. Now, huge scandals started already in the country. Nobody could believe this is possible. Why? Obviously, for Americans, it would be not clear why, but for every Soviet citizen, a sculpture of a man with a stretch out hand, it was obviously a sculpture of Lenin. It is in every Soviet city, uh, everybody recognized this image. He was not named as such. And, uh, and the editors uh, tried to defend themselves by saying, why you have this kind of dirty, <laughs> dirty thoughts about it? And so, no, no, this is simply humor about the two drunkards. He probably pulled uh, some sculpture of a pioneer in a, in a, in a, in a, in a park where are complaints of them and so on. So that's why I'm saying one way of doing this kind of a making fun of the ideology became through this kind of elaborate Isapian language. Uh, now, I also I took my, my part in it as well. I, I uh, published a, a few stories in the same club of Tvechev using this elaborate question. One of them, for example, is um, a mug of quas about a story about uh, a long line for people 
in the hard hard day uh, class is something like uh, similar probably to coca-cola in america but made of 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 bread uh, crumbs fermented and uh, so the long line is standing there and 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 finally uh, the, the 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 man who sells the sells it says well it's it's over we, we don't have no no more uh, stuff no 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 it's welcome it's hot people are coming and coming so one said you know what in order for the, for everybody to have enough drinking add some water <laughs> so his he pulled some water in this tank of with this uh, kvass at the end of it it came out that only people who paid money for, for kvass but actually they drank pure water that was the true story that's all but it obviously for anybody who lived in soviet union it was clear there's a satire on accepting being poor but equally equally poor in other words that that's kind of a uh, the the system that they call socialism and so on but basically it was the equality of being poor that's that's one of one of the um kind of a examples of how it was possible at that time uh to to work for as a writer in in the late 1960s 1970s yeah Okay, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to pick up right there. I want to talk a little bit about anti-Semitism, the experience of being a Jewish writer in that time and how that impacted some of the choices that you made. I also want to talk a little bit about uh, the historical period and your generation and uh, some general understandings that we could take from that and uh, that and a whole lot more. I'll continue the conversation with Emil Dreitzer. Again, if you're interested in the book launch, February 3rd, that's Wednesday, February 3rd. 3rd, 6.30 p.m. That's the virtual book launch. You can go to the show notes and I will have the link there for where you can register for the, uh, the Zoom link for that event. Please do enjoy the music and we will be right back. Могу поклясться вам предалтарем, но все же приезжайте к нам в Одессу, когда кругом акация цветет, сходите на привоз и в опереду, и дюку окажите свой почет. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама, укутай теплым солнечным платком, Одесса, мама. Одесса, мама, с тобой мечтает каждый быть знаком. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама, укутай теплым солнечным платком. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама, с тобой мечтает каждый быть знаком. Сейчас вам каждый одессит расскажет про тетю Соню смачный анекдот. На Дерибасовской ларек покажет, Где Беня ночью делал свой налет. Так приезжайте, гости дорогие, Мы выпьем по стаканчику вина, Послушаем рассказ про дни былые. Ведь вас Одесса в гости позвала. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама, Укутай. 
теплым солнечным платком. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама, с тобой мечтает каждый быть знаком. Одесса, мама, Одесса, мама. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Emil Dreitzer, the brand new book. You should definitely, definitely get yourselves a copy as soon as you can, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir. That's the brand new book. And in fact, it's really part of a trilogy. So I'll just plug all three books. Uh, the other book, which uh, chronologically comes after this new one, that's Farewell, Mama Odessa, which we've already kind of mentioned a little bit. And uh, the earlier book, Shush, Growing Up Jewish Under Stalin, a memoir. All of those books, of course, must reads. So I would highly recommend them. So, Emil, I want to pick up our conversation and talk a little bit about anti-Semitism and how anti-Semitism manifested in the post-Stalin period that in which you came of age and were a young man. And I guess specifically, I want to talk about the contradictions, uh, the contradiction really between the official policy, the official uh, you know uh, laws against anti-Semitism, the official policies on the books, and some of the unofficial realities, some of your own experiences. You talk a little bit in the book, you provide some of the examples that you encountered. So speak to that issue a little bit and help those of us who really don't know about that from the inside understand what that was like. Yes, thank you. I uh, actually did the kind of a friendship, Druzhba uh, friendship among the all people, equality of all people was part as your uh, officially proclaimed uh, equality. Uh, however, it was, uh, I think it's solely, we can cite um, uh, Joseph Stalin when they, after the end of the war, uh, World War II, he said one of his speeches that uh, uh, sort of he wants to, although they all, all um, nationalities are equal in the Soviet Union, he wants to point out that the Russian, Russian people are on uh, the best uh, sort of uh, they're the the primary it's what is true that is all soviet union uh, soviet culture was built on russian culture and it goes much beyond just the language it goes on uh, on the principle that um, uh, many things uh, that were uh, features of life in tsarist um, time became features of life in, in Soviet time as well, some continuation of it. And what is really, uh, what's, what Soviet uh, system successfully done, they expropriated Russian, the great Russian culture of 19th century, making seem that all the great Russian literature was prim primarily all kind of anticipated the uh, October Revolution. They, uh, I just mentioned one, <laughs> the title of one of Lenin's um, uh, booklets, uh, which goes like that. Um, Leo Tolstoy as a mirror of Russian revolution. In other words, no matter what the writers, uh, Dostoevsky and Gogol and so on the road, they all anticipated. So that was important to understand that the, the preeminence of, of Russian culture first and fourth for all. Now, for a variety of reasons, I would not call just because it's of nationalism, no. For right of reasons, there were uh, concentrated um, effort, especially uh, actually already established by, by researchers. It's, it started during World War II, actually, uh, of uh, curtailing Jewish 
participation in government apparatus and in, in, in culture as well. So in post-World War time, when I was growing up, two areas were clearly areas of discrimination is to when you get try to get a higher education and employment. With higher education, there were certain, certain um, colleges, there was no way if you're Jewish, and by the way, I know that not all Americans know about it, but every Soviet uh, citizen had a passport, internal passport. And, and this internal passport showed his not only his name, uh, first name, patronymic name, last name, but also his nationality, which means like ethnicity, ethnicity. So if you're Jewish, your passport will have, we call it the, the infamous fifth item. The fifth item, ethnicity would say Jew. It's nothing to do with whether you're uh, religious or not. It's ethnic. It's like in Hitler's Germany was the same thing. I mean, from that standpoint of view. So you could not get as a, as a Jew in, in the post-World War II time into law school because it was primarily for militia and KGB cadres prepared. You couldn't get for a certain foreign language institute like Institute Institute of Eastern Language because it was for future diplomats who not diplomats of, of in post-World War II time, uh, diplomats of, of Jewish descent. Before, yes, it, it, was, uh, it was a known uh, Russian, uh, I mean, Soviet uh, diplomat uh, who was uh, 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 Jewish, but not, not after, after that. In he, also humanities, even humanities, you cannot get into uh, school, let's say, literary institute, whatever it is, because it's considered to be politically sensitive area. So therefore, um, it was uh, in my own particular case, and I opened my book with the story of my my mother, who uh, when my my teacher school teacher said that I you know, have some literary abilities, she said no 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 no, forget about it. You you're going to engineering field and so on and so forth. So, and at that time, it's probably the Jewish humor of that time very well kind of illustrates the situation. Um, uh, it goes like that. Um, uh, a, a Jewish, uh, um, a Jewish young man uh, is uh, taking an exam at the Moscow University, and uh, they try to obviously sink him, asking him questions that's impossible to answer. So they ask him a question. Um, oh, it is known fact that Leo Tolstoy remembers himself when he was only forty days long, uh, old, forty days old, the old. What, is, what do you think why it is? And to which this uh, Jewish young man says, it's no big deal. I remember myself at, when I was 80, eight days long. <laughs> eight days. So what do you remember? Well, I remember how in our apartment appear an old man with long beard. He washed his hands. He took... <laughs> he took... Um, a scalpel in his hands and cut off my chances to be accepted to your university. So, in other words, it's clear that <laughs> that uh, being being uh, being circumcised, being being Jewish, you are not part of it. In employment as well, some of the it was 
uh, in employment, some some jokes actually tells it. Like, for example, my name is Rabinovich. Do you hire people of my profile? That's simple like that. And then my case also, I describe how I, uh, by chance, uh, was employed by uh, a technical publishing house by sheer <laughs> by sheer uh, kind of a misunderstanding between the uh, HR and the hiring manager who thought that I'm just a relative of a um, directors of the house wife who happened to be Jewish. Well, anyway, but probably it's not, not time for us to talk about. That's, that's a kind of a, a situation was for, uh, for Jews in the Soviet Union. So therefore, when, when um, uh, opportunity to immigrate opened up in 1968, late 1960s, uh, that was uh, no, very few people realized that it was initiated the whole idea of opening up. Immigration from Soviet Union was impossible from the early, late 1920s. It was closed up, all the borders. Uh, but in late 1966, actually 1968, um, KGB had of that time, and, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Gromyka, actually submitted proposal to the Politburo um, suggesting that they open up uh, immigration of Jews from the Soviet Union because they thought, well, actually, there are certain purposes that will be. First of all, they will stop uh, talking, uh, you know, in the West, uh, the campaign of uh, already started of Soviet Jewry movement that uh, Jews are kept uh, captive. They do not allow to be neither travel out, outside nor uh, immigrate nor even write letters to their relatives and so on. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll shut them down. Secondly, you know, we have inside some um, uh, garlapani, some uh, people who make trouble for us, uh, Jews and so on, telling, uh, claiming that we are not uh, living up to the Soviet constitution, which allows freedom of speech and so on and so forth, freedom of movement. And so we'll get rid of uh, them and maybe some other, maybe thousand or two, a couple of thousand of uh, old, old people who are not, 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 no longer of any value to, to, uh, to the country. And so they decided to officially announce it. And it just showed they had no idea what was going in the country. Instead of uh, thousands, there were hundred thousands of application all over. Uh, showered the offices of uh, foreign foreign visas around the country, and uh, that's actually the movement became very very strong. So therefore, uh, it was really a difficult time um, uh, to. At the same time, it, it it was nobody was assured, and that's the, some of uh, people don't understand. We, we talk about refuseniks, who was ref, re, the person who is refused. Exit visa, you apply and you're refused. Why is such a big deal? Why refuse? First of all, once and for all, once you up, they know that you apply for immigration, you're politic, considered to be politically unreliable. So therefore, end of your career, at best, if you're, you can get a job, uh, some, let's say, running elevators and things like that, uh, you, you're your professional life is over. Secondly, there was no, no one ever knew ex uh, why, whether they would be permitted to go or not. 
no one knew. And so there is a risk involved in this. And thirdly, of course, none of us knew because of the Iron Curtain, we knew very little what we're, how we're going to survive outside of it. Are we employable? The image of America, could you, I, for example, I had the, initially I had the engineering training, but I was not sure that I'll be able to, to be compatible uh, to or close in my qualification to American engineers and so on. So all this created a tremendous amount of uh, problem uh, when immigration came. Um, I want to make sure that we devote a little bit of time to the subject of humor because it is so central to Jewish culture in the Soviet Union and, and the history of Jews in, in, in Russia, but also it is central, of course, to your work and your, publish, your, your publishing uh, past, including several books. So I want to just ask you very broadly, Emil, if you could speak a little bit about the role of humor in Jewish life in the Soviet Union, and I mean specifically how was it disseminated? Are we talking a purely oral tradition, something that people told, you know, at their at their parties in their homes and so forth? Were there publications? Was this something that was purely in Russian language? Was there a subversive Yiddish element to it? Can you just describe a little bit what the humor uh, uh, of Jewish life was like? Actually, I um, I I kind of when I was already living here in the United States, I I got. Uh, interested in the whole phenomenon of Jewish humor, of course, because it was so prevalent in, 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 in my life and the life of, of many people in the Soviet Union, that tried to understand what is the functions, why Jewish humor was basically almost like people talk to each other in jokes or in punchline of, of the jokes. And what I found actually that um, the joke telling within any ethnic group is a form of kind of in-group discourse disguised of entertainment. Uh, I'll, I'll try to illustrate it, what I mean by this. Um, so there are various social functions that are et the ethnic humor does. Um, when a group member tells an ethnic joke, it opens the door for in-group communication and invites group members to examine their attitude behavior, if it's criticizing and so on. But in Soviet time, that's important that in the absence of formal Jewish organization, because remember, besides a few synagogues, one, per, uh, per, let's say the whole city of Odessa had so many Jews, it was one synagogue in Port World War II time. So humor actually <laughs> performed this social function. For example, especially in the time of volatile time of, of immigration, I wanted to illustrate with this. First of all, what humor did, the Jewish humor, delineate the boundaries of the group. In other words, they tell us we're all Soviet people. No, we are not all Soviet Soviet people. So we still have differences. We have cultural differences. And here comes one of the uh, items that people say, okay, how people of different nationalities come to a party? A Frenchman comes with a bouquet of flowers, Englishman with a steak, Russian with a bottle of vodka, a Jew with a relative. So in other words, you see the difference. How would they leave? <laughs> Frenchmen will leave with the most beautiful woman, Englishmen with the same stick, a Russian with a beat up, up face, and a Jew with a little uh, something for a relative who couldn't come. So in other words, yes, with this humor, still telling we are not the same. So this is kind of delineating also. Also, um, 
Jew, I mean, the jokes remind, like, people, okay, let's not forget you live in a police state. Let's not forget that you cannot be who you are. You, you, can, you don't have the right for your Jewish name. Okay, one of them, for example, uh, item of it is that um, a telephone call to a communal apartment. And, and you know, we, I, I live in a communal apartment uh, in, in Moscow. So uh, somebody picks up the phone and says, uh, uh, may I talk to Moisha? Somebody calls in. So immediately the person who picks up said, Moisha, we don't have anyone like this. Okay, he gang up. Then after a while, another phone call. And then it says, may I talk to Misha? which is Russian name for, short for Mikhail. And then the man inside of the of, of this uh, communal apartment shouts, Moisha is for you. In other words, you are okay to be Moisha within the <laughs> within close and close kind of a, a, a community of the of this apartment, but you for the outside world better not to reveal to your Jewish. Things like that. Immigration is a scary, a scary, scary, scary thing to contemplate it with all, as I discussed already, so many things were unknown, so frightful, the prospect of not knowing what, what to expect and so on. So some people, some Jews thought, well, maybe in time things will better. So there came a Jewish joke that started circulating about this ridiculing the hesitant. For example, uh, will there be the fifth item is ethnicity. In the Soviet passport, are there communism? No, then won't. But will be the sixth one. Were you a Jew under socialism? So in other words, <laughs> making fun of this kind of expectation that, that anti-Semitism will disappear as such. So that, that all kind of humor played this kind of important function and it was uh, bread and butter. I mean, the first thing that people would uh, get together, they exchange jokes. That kind of sustained the spirit of, of Jewish uh, community in the Soviet Union at that time. In the few minutes that we have remaining, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you about uh, political life in the Soviet Union. Of course, I understand in asking that question, it's a severely limited question because it was, of course, limited by the party apparatus and all of the institutions and structures in place. But um, just as somebody who uh, you know existed outside of that sort of controlled system, uh, was there anything outside of the party, even underground, even whispered among people in quiet conversations? What was political life like outside of the system? Yes, of course, uh, especially in, in the time of, uh, started in time of uh, Khrushchev, of course, because Khrushchev uh, kind of a, an attempt of, which was later on kind of a verbalized in Czechoslovakia, give a, a socialism a human face, right? But with the, with with the Brezhnev coming back to power, the as I already mentioned, the um, all these uh, little freedoms of speech and 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 the freedoms in in arts and so on were curtailed. So there was a lot of. Uh, that kind of uh, activity went underground. And dissident movement became very prominent. Yes, there was quite a bit. And, and interesting to know that the main toll of the dissident movement, they were not uh, sort of anti-Soviet on the face of it. They just simply say, please observe the Constitution. 
we have right for speech, we have right for movement and so on. In other words, they did not question, they didn't say that Soviet system is uh, whatever it is, uh, any bad word of it, but simply observe. So therefore, uh, we, we knew, uh, of course, of people who were uh, uh, detained, that were put in, in psychiatric uh, clinics, uh, claiming they're, they're, uh, they're insane. How could they possibly criticize? Uh, I would, uh, at least one of my uh, friends, uh, he actually who went into this kind of a, a human rights movement within, within the Soviet Union, he simply went to, like, as a preemptive sort of strike, he went to a professional psychiatrist and want him to examine him, himself, him, whether he is sane, that everything is fine with him. So that he, and he would have like a note, in other words, that he would have some protection to say that he's not certifiably crazy. In other words, that his mental health is okay. I'm just giving an example of what kind of a political life could be. No, it was uh, hardly any uh, kind of a sense of a, a big party and so on. There were simply clusters of, of dissidents. For example, it, it's known that uh, probably the one public protest that was um, never publicized, of course, the Soviet Union was at the Red Square at the time after after the uh, Soviet tanks ran into Prague to suppress the Prague Spring. Um, a handful of intellectuals, uh, several of them Jewish, of course, uh, came to protest. The protest lasted like five minutes, but they were able to, uh, to show uh, uh, posters uh, for our and your freedom. That was it, 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 it said. So they were immediately arrested and several of them got uh, life prison, I mean, uh, long-term long uh, um, sentence and so on. That, that, uh, that the only political activity I would think of of my time, uh, of that time that was uh, opposing the, the system. And can you just talk a little bit about uh, Western literature, Samizdat, and uh, what the uh, literature that you may have come in contact with from outside of the Soviet Union? Well, the, as far as, uh, um, as Western literature was starting, as I said, with Khrushchev time, there was a, a journal start to publish translation of best of uh, um, American writers, for example, or German, Henrik Bjerg was published, a German writer, uh, they published, um, uh, besides, okay, in, the, in Stalin's time, obviously, they published, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Theodor Dreiser, American Tragedy, they published Upton Sinclair, uh, 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 things like that. But uh, in the time of already in the 19, uh, um, 1960s, the journal, the foreign literature, published um, many American contemporary writers, um, including what the, what we uh, would be uh, Abdike, for example, or um, Steinbeck. I remember very well that really impressed me in uh, um, uh, something like travel with uh, 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 traveled through America. I mean, I forgot with it travel with a dog with America and through, through America and so on. So in other words, we were exposed to the contemporary American literature. Yes. Some is that is something else. Some is that is that things that would not be possible to publish 
in this magazine because of the obvious anti-Soviet content. For example, Orwell's famous uh, novel, 1984, or, uh, or Animal Farm, was never published in the Soviet time, uh, at least in my time. Uh, and um, uh, But it was available reading through Samizdat. And Samizdat is, uh, for those who, people who may not know, it's, uh, it's, it has the word Izdat as if it's a polygraphically produced work. No, it was simply typed on a typewriter. Four copies with the, uh, on a, a typewriter you, you give to somebody else to read for or for a night, and you, the, the the interest was so great because the country was for a long time so separated from the outside world that we had absolute we couldn't have enough of this literature that was uh, that was coming, and that that why some is that played important role. Uh, some is that was not only literature of that kind. There's also let's say. <laughs> Uh, a manual about um, sexu- sexual maturity of, of boys and girls, because none of such material was available in Soviet Union. It was considered to be uh, Soviet Union was Victorian in its uh, uh, in its norms uh, of uh, talking about uh, sexual matters openly and so on. Some of some of that sort also existed as a in the form of a, uh, some is that that's that's the. One of the interesting things about the subject for me, of course, and looking at it historically and all of the research that's been done is how much uh, the Cold War played in to a lot of this, including things like the CIA paying to publish Dr. Zhivago, Francis Stoner Sonner's book, The Cultural Cold War, which goes into all of the patronage from the uh, U.S. intelligence services for all of these expressionist artists and publications and others that were specifically aimed at kind of demonstrating this cultural freedom that existed in the United States as opposed to the cultural tyranny that existed in the Soviet Union. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yes, uh, I know about it, that uh, it was a number of uh, emigre publications in America were supported by by CIA uh, because they knew that uh, it, it is something that is uh, sooner or later would be would be sought after by readers in Russia. By the way, uh, the American publishing house Ardis was very instrumental in uh, publishing those Amer- uh, Russian Soviet writers who were not possible, who could not publish their work. It's called Tamizdat, in other words, over there is that in English, o- over their publication instead of Samizdat means self-publication. Uh, so uh, yes, an Ardis uh, uh, publisher, uh, produced a lot of uh, work in Russian and in English, as far as I know, and that was published in uh, uh, and oftentimes smuggled back in the Soviet Union. But it seems like, and this is, I guess, what I'm getting at uh, since you experienced it firsthand, is that that uh, that a lot of those efforts, particularly what we would call soft power efforts aimed at the Soviet Union, were, in fact, some of the most successful tools that the United States used. Well, it's hard for me to say to what what to what do you mean? What do you mean by more successful? Successful in terms of Im- impacting the uh, thinking of people behind the Iron Curtain more so than say political broadcasts on the Voice of America. That's true. That's true because basically it was important that, especially when I mentioned artists, it was important to know that for for a Soviet writer at that time, that uh, worse comes to worse if his work is not 
is not uh, kind of a in the face anti-Soviet that he, in other words, he could be accused and through in jail and so on. Uh, then at least he has his choice of being published outside of the Soviet Union. I, in this respect, I, I mentioned uh, Vasily Aksyonov. Vasily Aksyonov wrote uh, a no, very kind of autobiographical novel about his uh, childhood. His, uh, he was a child. Of, his father was uh, and mother were both repressed. And uh, while his father, as far as I remember, he was shot, his mother was exiled, and he traveled as a young boy with his aunt to see her in one of the uh, one of the exiled uh, places of his exile. So he wrote it in in Russian at that time. When remember, after Khrushchev came to power, it was possible to publish after the one day of Ivan Denisovich, the, the Solzhenitsyn, there was a, a, a open out the window of the time talking about the camps, talking about this particular time. So he, when he wrote, he thought he will be, pub, be able to publish it. However, time, as I already mentioned, uh, ran out and uh, he'd only hope for him to have it in print. He sent it uh, to the West and it was eventually was published in, I believe, by Random House in America. Uh, just a couple of last questions before we run out of time. I want to just ask you very quickly about music because this is something I've I've spoken with uh, about with my dad and 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 with others. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about um, not you know about Western and, and particularly American music behind the Iron Curtain inside the Soviet Union? I think in particular jazz I find interesting. To, to what extent did you have exposure to it? What did it mean to uh, people inside the Soviet? Union to hear this kind of music. Can you speak to that a little bit? What comes to my mind immediately is that <laughs> uh, uh, when, uh, with again, with Khrushchev's opening up, uh, sort of speak, remember, 19, uh, I, I believe I describe it in, in one of my books, my experience of 1957, I went to Moscow for the first international festival of youth. And uh, there were young people around the world came in. And with them also came, uh, came uh, uh, I would say, unimaginable popularity of American uh, jazz music. Um, there were, they, because of this, obviously, this, this state uh, music production was uh, impossible to penetrate. It was produced, especially in Odessa, on the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the okay. The music was caught by shortwave radio, and recorded on um, tape recorders. And then they made from tape recorders at that time. At that time, no, it's not a tape recorder. They produce uh, vinyl uh, records, uh, almost like uh, imagine uh, uh, like uh, uh, the same kind of material that goes into X-rays, right? <laughs> and sometimes that particular let's say uh, we, we call it like uh, dancing on a, on a, on a, on a bone, so to speak. Uh, and that was sold underground in, in the, on the streets of Odessa. It was extremely popular. Nihadite dieti v školu, dieti Coca-Cola. That was the, the, the making fun of children, don't go to school, just drink Coca-Cola. Like <laughs> sort of uh, 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 making, making fun of the uh, boogie-woogie uh, uh, tunes and so on. It was very, very popular. Uh, to us, uh, um, for example, um, it was a rumor when I came to Moscow in 1957 uh, 
for this festival that um, Louis Armstrong and, uh, no, uh, I think that um, Ella Fitzgerald will be there. It was excitement. We could not have, how, where, how possibly we can hear it. So it was absolutely um, uh, new uh, kind of kind of music. And what was in the music for the Soviet um, people was the joy. You understand that the note of joy, of dancing, of moving, uh, while the jazz was always, actually, even in the 1920s, there was some penetration of jazz music in the Soviet Union. And Utsiosov is my compatriot coming from Odessa, the famous uh, singer. He had the jazz orchestra who produced this movie. But uh, that, uh, so the jazz, but, but jazz for a long time was kind of under um, strict, uh, strict governmental control. It could not make it to the big avenue. Then it was called, needless to say, the word jazz is foreign. They call it estradny orchestra, means uh, open uh, estrada, we have to say it, open, open, open uh, scene uh, uh, orchestra, something, something of that sort. Uh, so, but it uh, was, eventually, there was some of it became acquired by the Soviet system and some, well, like, for example, which also was produced in, post, in post-Soviet time. But uh, but needless to say, I still remember very well this vinyl made of um, on this thin um, uh, vinyl material records uh, that were were we caught from uh, over the radio. I want to ask you a very general question to close out our conversation here. Um, and of course, we'll get more specific perhaps uh, in a follow-up, but um, I want you to just, if you could, to try to describe your generation uh, politically. And I guess what I mean by that is how would you how would you define the ideological tendencies and worldview of those people uh, of your generation? And I guess to be more specific, uh, how do you characterize it in light of the strong tendency towards uh, right-wing politics in the United States since they have immigrated to the United States, uh, particularly in embrace of Trump and uh, far-right politics. Um, I think that there is a wealth of information to kind of discuss as far as that goes. But at a general level, uh, can you just describe the mentality that you would ascribe to your generation? Yes, it's a good question because I actually thought of it. Actually, I'm working on my new book, which is uh, covering my American experience, because after all, I have the trilogy from my uh, from the age seven to <laughs> to coming to United States. That's how the uh, the, the, the my farewell mamadessa ends with. Uh, so I, I gave a lot of thought about it, and I maybe just briefly tell you that what I see is primarily the okay people who grew up in the Soviet Union, this generation, especially the older generation. Um, they were um, basically raised in on the uh, in Russian in in the politically conservative Russian culture. It was always like that. So, in other words, they are coming from a political conservative in a sense of of several things. For example, power structure. Okay, in Russia, the power structure was always always organized vertically. That means in old times of absolute monarchy ruling, in Soviet times, there was a veneer of democracy, but at the same time, it was always vertically arranged power structure. 
President Putin even today now says uh, uh, vertical of power. He talks about it. We need to vertical power. There is no other sense of power that power could be organized horizontally. What is democracy, as I understand it means? Power is distributed horizontally. In other words, states have powers that can be overrun by the federal government. Unthinkable in Soviet thinking, in Russian thinking. Okay, So this is important to understand how this perceived. Secondly, civic passivity is a norm, was a norm of, of my generation growing up. There was not, not such a thing as volunteer, any volunteering action. It was called, as we call it, um, uh, vol- okay, I would say it in Russian, dobrovolno prinuditelno, means voluntary compulsory, any activity including going to the first May, let's say May 1st demonstration, right? And I, actually in my book, this, uh, the current book that's coming out, I describe it, how it was, uh, you, you, it's political, if, if you can, re, if you refuse, yes, it's seemingly, it's voluntarily, right? But if you refuse, you'll be considered politically unreliable and how people try to do anything to, to wiggle out of this, uh, of this uh, kind of a, a situation because nobody really, uh, so any sense of it and so on. So uh, election also. There was no sense of election as a, like a, a act of citizenship or free and so on. No, Soviet Union, you were, it was compulsory in what sense? In what sense? Again, voluntary compulsory. Uh, well, it was, first of all, it was known that actually it's only a, a show. Uh, I think that every Soviet citizen knew the, the Comrade Stalin's pronouncement. He said, People who vote decide nothing. People who count the votes decide everything. Okay, so and th- th- therefore it was clear that this is only f- as a pro forma. So it will be announced that ninety nine point ninety seven percent of votes will given to the they call it candidate of bloc of communist and non party member uh, the moral unity and so political unit of Soviet uh, Soviet society. That was clear. So there was not actually no sense of what democracy really means. So that, that's uh, the very word freak, uh, that was in the paper uh, means it was not difficult to understand that when uh, people, what is democracy to begin with? It was not, it was not ex- accepted in a terms what it really means because it never existed. So, um, so therefore a Soviet person usually Ordinary kind of, was an opportunist means how we can use this system to survive. How is uh, can adapt to it? Um, that's that's primarily was the preoccupation. Um, that's uh, so. Therefore, here uh, the mentality of people who of Russian Jewish community, Russian community, Russian community, not only Jewish Russian community exists here is that. If somebody is doing something voluntarily, huh? Why do you need this, huh? What he is getting off? What was his benefit, and so on? They don't understand it. Yeah. So it's it's that's something that is uh, has to be. Uh, it's difficult to <laughs> to understand, but that's that, to me. This is that's why. For example, I'll give you an example. The um, of recent uh, uh, election in America. So knowing that in America voting is purely voluntarily, right? Um, but seeing influx of, let's say, on television of early voters, mostly Democratic, in, in, in many states, so they gave birth in the, in the uh, they gave uh, the belief 
give birth to the belief that they all did it because they paid up by George Soros, <laughs> philanthropist. So they could not kind of take it in their mind that, hey, people want it because this is democracy after all. They want to do it themselves. And that's what's that's important. Secondly, that's something that is really escapes, um, I'm sure more, most Americans, it's the Russian historical legal, legal nihilism. That means the American uh, concept of the preeminence of the law is weird for the ex-Soviet newcomers. I only just uh, to cite Thomas Paine, who said, in the land of the free, law is the king. It never, never crossed. It's really difficult to understand for, for the traditionally, uh, as my, my, my colleague from uh, Vanderbilt University, uh, Professor Kostanovich, actually recently published a, a book about uh, the uh, titled um, Russian-American culture, uh, two world, war, a world apart, where he actually shows historical roots of it. So, but today, for example, recently, one of my friends received a, a letter from, uh, from, uh, from Russia, uh, kind of making fun of America. Oh, you're Americans, you're law-abiding bubbleheads. Okay, they could not understand it. How come? So in other words, it's almost like, uh, I'm a free person. Why should any law be, and, and so on, uh, be uh, an obstacle to my, to my freedom and so on? Uh, and many other things. For example, fear of socialism, so-called, right? Because, again, nobody in the Soviet Union lived under socialism the way we understand it. Because it, it was Soviet Union, but definitely not a socialism, but was a, a, a government-run um, economic system uh, with no market uh, economy and uh, state-run with total co control of the market and so on. But all the what we call socialism is social. When I came to America in 1975, I was amazed to see that so many social elements of socialism were much more present in America than Soviet Union. For example, uh, my father, uh, your grandfather, uh, he was already of age. He could not find work. So he was receiving SSI, uh, Social Security Assistant Program. Uh, there were food stamps. There were uh, 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 also help with, um, um, with Medicaid, with, help with... Uh, 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 low payment uh, um, living, I mean, living quarter, I mean, the, the like section eight low income housing, low income, low income housing, and so on. So that was unthinkable ever uh, to think about that. That was ever, <laughs> was never even talked about in the Soviet Union. So, uh, so that's that's what it is. Uh, secondly, there is something else is that the kind of a, the, the, the Soviet mind was always in binary terms, either or. That means if you're, okay, the Bolsheviks actually slogan was those who are not with us are against us. They don't understand that somebody may vote for another candidate, somebody, you know, in other words, they're either enemies or friends. That's it, nothing, nothing in between, no neutrality. So this is something else ingrained in the way these people uh, were kind of brought up. And that was important, uh, politically illiterate, you, you may say. I could make a quick comment. Um, the uh, listeners of this show, if you recall, 
uh, I guess now a couple of years ago, but Jason Stanley was on this program talking about his wonderful book, How Fascism Works, and talked about the politics of us and them, right, as a hallmark of fascist political ideology. And it certainly remains the case when we look at the Trump uh, personality cult and the various uh, people that have bought into this uh, fascist movement, that they are essentially creating this co this constant us versus them. And in fact, that is very much the case with the Russian Jewish community that has embraced uh, bizarrely and tragically embraced an obviously fascist politics. Yeah, that's exactly that's 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 what it is because uh, basically that <laughs> not much uh, in in terms of that kind of stark ideological kind of a uh, uh, canons are fascism and and uh, uh, Soviet time uh, politics were very very akin. So there, we understand it. That's uh, that, that's well, we understand it now. But that's what it is. Secondly, something that's also that uh, the culture of American culture, the core of American culture, the way I see it, is based on Protestant uh, calling of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and human dignity. This is totally foreign to people who always depended on the state. You understand? So that's totally un not understandable. So therefore, they assume that all Americans just want to take advantage of unemployment and enjoy doing nothing, okay? Uh, to understand that it's only in human nature, once they at least have a roof over their head and they're not starving, they want to do something, some to, to use some of their abilities and so on, it's, it's not going to. I would also interject there that uh, as with uh, America generally, and certainly with this group uh, specifically, that it is not just anybody that uh, can collect benefits and not work, that this is also racialized. And that is one of the fundamental characteristics of American right-wing reactionary politics is the constant racialization of a lot of these issues. And even for immigrants who come to this country uh, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, they too have accepted and sort of been subsumed into this racialized politics. Yes, yes, unfortunately, this is true because, first of all, uh, coming from the Soviet Union, uh, they were, uh, to begin with, there were no um, uh, people of color lived in the Soviet Union. I mean, other black people where there were few students coming from Africa uh, to as a students of Patrice Lumumba University. There was no uh, actually really really knowledge of of, of, of first-hand knowledge about the people. So the only they were only fed on stereotypes uh, that well that basically it's true for anyone. If you if you have non first-hand knowledge, you go to stereotype, and this stereotype this is fed fed by propaganda. Uh, that's what it. But in the, in this particular case, I have to say that they're probably the most probably probing question would be. Why seemingly Jews, Russian Jews, as they describe already, being subject of uh, of such so much discrimination, and so on? Why don't they? Uh, they are uh, some of it, at least, and we we know it. Uh, feel have this racist attitude toward uh, black people, and I, I, to my, I explain it only with one thing: it's a deflection. People who came from Soviet Union, my generation, were totally crushed. Their egos were crushed uh, by they considered to be totally outside of the norm, so to speak. So for them, it's that uh, black people in America is just seemingly the only one who could be, quote unquote, 
treated worse than them. In other words, that they feel somehow about. What I mean by this, like, I'll give you an example how I see it. In uh, old uh, Tsarist Russia, a peasant, a Russian peasant, a serf, was totally deprived of any rights, of, had no power for anyone but his wife, so Baba. So he could beat his wife because he felt superior to her. You understand? That's all. Nobody else. And that's what it is. Unfortunately, that's very a kind of shameful and but unfortunate result of that kind of a, of a thinking. I think I think if I could also interject another possible explanation, and I'm, I don't mean to suggest that there's only one. This is obviously a multifaceted question that would probably require many hours of conversation and, and, and discussion. But um, I think a lot of it also has to do with the illusion versus the reality. And that is to say what America represented for somebody in the Soviet Union who was looking at a better future for themselves versus the America that they actually came to with all of the social problems and all of the conflicts, etc. And so when they came to this country, rather than actually engaging with the country as it really exists and all of the social problems and everything else, they ignored much of that and instead preferred this sort of illusion of America, a much cleaner, nicer, simpler America without a lot of those problems. I think that's one of the big ones, a lack of engagement with reality and with the material uh, conditions in this country. And you don't engage with something long enough and you completely lose any semblance of reality. But that's exactly what what I'm talking about, the civic, (laughs) not the sense that you're part of a huge (laughs) country and you now you're a citizen of the country. You can do something of it. That, I'm not saying I, we should not paint with the same uh, brush uh, all uh, newcomers from the Soviet Union. However, there are some who went in politics and became uh, even representing and so on. So there are kind of understanding that they have to be first and foremost citizens to to make it, in other words, citizens in the sense that they have to be part of this society, not to expect that they came Oh, we say it in Russian. We came on everything is prepared for us, clean and, and no problem whatsoever. We just need to, to take advantage of it. That's, that's the mentality. But I think there's a difference between a desire for assimilation and a desire for understanding. Those are not necessarily the same. Not absolutely. There's no desire to understanding. No, that for those who just want to understand, they, they found that they have to do something by themselves. I think another thing, and I just want to get your take on it, and we're, of course, running way over the time here. We're going to wrap it up in a second. But uh, I, want to just, I, I want to just ask you, I mean, I think some of the uh, racial attitudes and, and, and racist uh, um, ideas come from the fact that much of the Soviet propaganda about the United States and about race relations in the United States that, you, that, that people of your generation were inundated with turns out to be very much true. And to have to engage with the reality of the fact that Soviet propaganda was a lot of bullshit, but also a lot of truth, I think that is deeply disconcerting for for many of them. That's true. That's absolutely true. That uh, uh, some of the things that were, we're, okay, most of us, at least I'm talking about myself, we did not believe, we all assume, me, me, I and my friends, or my immediate son, none of us believed any lines uh, published in the Soviet paper about America because they knew we, we all believe it's all true lies that everything is in reality the opposite. Okay, 
So therefore, to find that some of the things were true, <laughs> very, very, very difficult to accommodate because, again, we look as outsiders, not part of the country in which you live, in which you try to use your own kind of efforts. I, I believe that the citizenship, the sense of being part of the democratic society in which you can do as much as you uh, uh, express yourself and do something, that was totally absent in the, totally is totally absent in the mentality of the newcomers from the ex-Soviet Union. My final question to wrap up this subject too is, uh, where does it go from here in your mind? I mean, what is the logical conclusion of all of this? Because again, this is a very dangerous political path. Once you have an embrace of a a fascist-like politics, even when the person at the center of the personality cult goes away, the fascist politics and ideological uh, clarity remains. And so my question is, what does it mean for uh, this community? And also, what does it mean for uh, intergenerational uh, discussion? Because, of course, there is a very significant gap between, say, people of your generation and people of mine who are the generation of your children. Absolutely. No, that, that's to me, it's very clear that this is a generational problem. I don't think you can change in mass, uh, the old generation. But I have to say, to be truthful, it's not only uh, we're, it, this particular group we're discussing. Uh, most uh, immigrants coming from other culture keep their their uh, conservative. They keep things that they know uh, that they're they're familiar. With. I, I, maybe I, uh, if I have uh, a minute time, I wanted just to give you some episode that make make me think about it. Uh, some years ago, I was traveling uh, on air, and um, I talked to a young lady, um, uh, obviously of Indian descent, and she told me that uh, we are coming to Chicago, and I asked her, what is in Chicago for you? Is it a business trip? She said, no, no, I'm going to see my my groom. I say, what do you mean by see your groom? Uh, do you Did you meet him? No, 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 I didn't meet him at all. I said, what do you mean? It's arranged marriage. Wait a minute, arranged marriage. Are you in America? What are you talking about? How it's arranged marriage? She says, no, 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 no. Why wouldn't you? I say, you're in America. I'm sorry. You grew up here. Why wouldn't you marry an American man? She said, no, no, no. But people, my, my people will kill me. I say, my people means the Indian with the name. I say, wait a minute, but you're in America. You can do whatever you feel like. No, 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 no. I cannot do. But what is good about America, you can go. As long as you pay your taxes, I repeat what she said. Uh, you do what you what you feel like doing. It nobody forces you to do. But unfortunately, that's what it is. You if you live within a community, they you do what they tell you to do, and so on. So that's what I'm trying to say. That's it's a matter of generation. I believe that already the next generation will be much more American, should I say, than the current one. The current one you can call them American just by passport they carry, but not really in spirit. Yes, absolutely. And I think it's doubly important that we have this conversation, Emil, because I think it's also uh, quite dangerous that many uh, people, not just, of course, in the Russian Jewish community that we've been speaking today, but in other communities, uh, are targeted with disinformation campaigns. And they are victims of a massive disinformation campaign using many different social media platforms, messaging apps, many different things. And uh, the lack of uh, sophistication about disinformation 
information and online and inter- disinformation on the internet and so forth, that has also made uh, particularly people of uh, the generation that we're speaking of, I think, susceptible to a lot of this. Absolutely. They, it's uh, the, the new media, the social media is totally new to, for many. Uh, I have to say some of my friends of age, uh, uh, some things uh, I cannot I cannot communicate them uh, the way I, I would like to, let's say, if even FaceTime or uh, something of uh, or Skype even on the telephone because for them it's a, it's another hurdle to come over. So obviously there's kind of a lack of a, a more sophisticated kind of you know modern means of communication plays a big role in in further them this particular community we talk about staying in in the way in their regional sort of state of mind. Nothing is really going to change in that respect. Imagine imagine Jews propagandizing anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about George Soros. It's amazing. Well, again, it's not, uh, it, 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 it defies any logic, of course, uh, but uh, that's unfortunately, that's the reality. That's the reality, and this is the reality of time that we have run out of it. So uh, Emil Dreitzer has been my guest today. Emil, of course, is my uncle. Emil is also a uh, professor emeritus of Russian at Hunter College in New York. He is the author of many books, including uh, Shush, Growing Up Jewish Under Stalin, a memoir, Farewell, Mama Odessa, and the brand new book just about to be released, In the Jaws of the Crocodile, a Soviet memoir. Uh, I would ask anybody who's interested, please do go to the show notes. I have a link there for the book launch, which will be on February 3rd at 6.30 p.m. with Shakespeare and Company. Go to the link. You can register for your uh, Zoom reservation there. Emil, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch and chatting with us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again next week.